You're listening to a sermon series on Judges, Broken People, Faithful God. To learn more, visit linworthroadchurch.com. Well, again, good morning. It's good to see you all again. Uh, As I mentioned last week, uh, I'm going to be walking us through the life of Samson over the next few weeks. And uh, if if you were here with us last week, you'll remember that that I shared that the life of Samson is in many ways uh, like a Shakespearean tragedy. And I know for some of you, you're reaching way back into high school English, and, and me too. I had to, you know, do a little research here to, to be able to talk about this. But um, again, just to review, if you weren't here with us last week, a, a typical tragedy goes through some different stages. And, and first off, they almost always start off with some happy times. Things are going well. The future looks bright. Uh, but then a problem is introduced. And, and, and oftentimes, the problem is a direct result of of some moral corruption or some moral flaws in the main character. And then the problem begins to worsen uh, to a point of crisis, which will uh, then in the final stage end in tragic death. And, uh, and so that's really kind of a, a picture, a real-life picture of the life of Samson. And, and last week, we looked at Judges chapter 13, and, and we saw in many ways what would be the happy times of this real-life tragedy. And, and today we're going to move on, and we're going to look at chapter 14 and 15, and we're going to see that uh, some major problems are introduced, and, and we're going to also see that Samson was a man who lacked character in just about every way imaginable. Um, but before we dive into the story, I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we invite you here this morning, we invite your presence, your spirit to uh, come and fill this room, to come and to uh, give us ears to hear, to give us eyes to see. Uh, Lord, we trust that you have some things out of your word for us this morning. And uh, so, Lord, would you help us? Would you uh, be a part of this time? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Judges chapter 14. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one uh, in the pew in front of you. And Judges chapter 14 is found on on page 214. And starting in verse 1, it says this. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and he told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and his mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and his mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Okay, let's stop right there because uh, we've already had some major problems introduced here. And, and literally the first words out of Samson's mouth are, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, now go get her for me. And if you remember back to last week, what, one of the main things we hit on was that Uh, Samson's divine purpose, his God-given mission in life was what? It was to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And yet here we have Samson, uh, far from fulfilling his divine purpose, he's he's desiring and he's seeking a wife from the very people he's supposed to be fighting. And so again, on the surface, it seems that Samson is far from fulfilling this God-given purpose. And uh, we see in verse 3 that his parents are they're trying to talk him out of this. They, they seem to understand that this is a bad idea. Uh, perhaps they even understood that this was a violation of the Mosaic law, which 
could be why they referred to them as the uncircumcised Philistines. Uh, but either way, they are unable to uh, persuade their son otherwise, and they, they really cave and give in to his request. But then we read this very interesting and perhaps even concerning phrase which says this, His father and his mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And so what does that mean? I mean, that, on the surface, that seems very troubling. I mean, does that mean that God's violating his own laws and commands? Does, does that mean that he is ordaining or causing sin? Well, a couple of things. First off, we have to, again, remember something that I shared last week, and that's this. Israel was in a very real danger of, of, of being extinct. They didn't cry out for deliverance. If you remember, I showed that, that cycle, that circle that we see uh, all through the life of uh, the judges where um, they, they follow foreign gods, they then are oppressed, they then cry out, and then God sends a deliverer. Well, this time in the life of Samson, they don't cry out for help. And so again, they are, are, they are uh, in a very, they're in danger here. Um, they're on the verge of extinction. In fact, uh, as I mentioned last week, they're, they're, it's so bad that, that some fellow uh, Israelites are actually going to hand Samson over to the Philistines. And so things are, are really, really bad here. They have assimilated into the Philistine culture and nation, and they show no signs of wanting out. And so again, because God is so faithful to his covenants and to his promises, he can't let Israel disappear by assimilation. No, he needs to stir some things up. He needs to cause some conflict to happen between Israel and the Philistines. And of course, he would, he would prefer to use a godly uh, person to do that. And yet he doesn't have that person to work with. And so if you can't have that, then who better than a morally flawed, overgrown toddler and a man's body? And that's really who Samson is, you know. I heard one guy say, uh, he said, the reason that they, they have toddlers and little bodies is because it, it, it reduces the amount of damage that they would do. And <laughs> I have a few toddlers, so I, I totally get that. Uh, but that's not true of Samson. He is a strong man. And yet, he, in many ways, he's like a toddler in this body. And, and, um, and so, again, because Samson is not fulfilling his God-given purpose, because he's not pursuing the Lord, God is going to have to use Sans, Samson's sinful desires, his wrong motives to fulfill his purpose and to accomplish his will. Now, I don't know. That may be hard for some of you. Perhaps this passage is troubling for you. Uh, to be honest, just very real. It, was, it bothered me when I first read it. But as I dug into Samson's life and as I thought about the state of Israel at this time, and as I reflected on God's faithfulness and his commitment to his own promises, this began to make sense. You see, the key is in the middle of verse 4. It says about God, it says, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. One, one translation says it this way, he was looking for an opportunity to stir up trouble with the Philistines. You see, the point is this. Israel had gotten so comfortable with the Philistines, with their enemy, that, that God needed to stir some stuff up. And so even though Samson was not following him and he was not fulfilling his purpose, God still uses him. Because remember, God's purpose, his plans, they are not going to fail because of our unfaithfulness. And so let's keep going in our story here. Verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and his mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and he talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Okay, uh, so Samson's walking with his parents. Uh, apparently because of the way the story's told, they're, they're going in the same direction, but they appear to not be uh, exactly with each other because we're told that when Samson kills the lion, his parents, uh, they don't know about it. And, and so the first thing to note here, I think, in this passage is, is look where Samson is. It tells us that he's in the vineyards of Timnah. And if you remember what I said last week about the Nazarite vow that he is under, uh, one of the restrictions, one of the, the, the laws that he was not supposed to do under this vow is to drink no alcohol, no grape juice, or to even eat grapes. And look where he is. Now, it doesn't tell us that he ate any, but it is still highly concerning and compromising. Uh, but, you know, maybe we should give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe uh, it's what like happened to me once. I was uh, once driving home from work, going down Broad Street in downtown, and I see this woman thumbing for a ride, and uh, I've never picked, at this point in my life, I had never picked anyone up before, but I thought, you know what, she seems nice enough, I'm feeling in a generous mood, and so, you know what, I'm going to pick her up. <laughs> and uh, so she uh, gets in the car, and I tell her, you know, I'm only going so far up Broad Street, and so that's as far as I can take you, and she's like, oh, okay, and... And so we begin to drive, and she looks over at me, and she's like, oh, I, I see you have a wedding ring. You must be married. And I'm like, yeah, I've just been married a few years. And, and uh, at this point, she then to say some very inappropriate things to me uh, and then solicits me for sexual activity. So, <laughs> I mean, I, at this point, I'm completely thrown off and shocked. Uh, I almost wrecked the car. I'm so like, wait, what? Uh, I go on to explain to her, like, no, 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 I'm, I am happily married, I am, I'm not interested, and she's like, okay, and, and so at this point in my head, I am freaking out, I'm thinking, I have to get this lady out of my car, I have somehow, on accident, picked up a prostitute, and uh, now look, I was only like 23 or 24 years old, I was somewhat of a new Christian, and so maybe you're judging me, maybe you're like, I can't believe you wanted to get this woman out of your car, you know, look, I realize if Jesus was driving the car, he would have, uh, he would have picked her up, he would have loved her, he would have forgiven her sins, and he would have led her to faith in himself, but that's not where I was at that day, I was thinking, <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm going to get arrested for picking up a prostitute, <laughs> I got to get out of here, you know, and, and so I drop her off as quickly as I could, and I rush home to my dear wife, and I explain everything that happened, and, and now it's become this big joke, but, and so maybe that's what happened to Samson, right? Maybe he's walking in the vineyards, but he's not actually eating the grapes, but if I know anything about him and his character, I highly doubt it. And then after that, we read one of the greatest lines in the Bible in verse 6. He tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. I mean, have any of you torn a young goat with your bare hands in pieces? Uh, I've not done that lately. In fact, my father-in-law has quite a few goats, and I've even, uh, I've even helped out butchering one once, which, which was quite the experience. But I can assure you, we did not butcher that thing with our bare hands, just like ripping off limbs. And, and, but apparently this was a common thing back then. And, and you know, like, look, I'm 31 years old. I, I recognize I'm not as tough as my grandparents' generation or the ones before that. But you have to be a really tough dude if this is common for you to tear apart the goat. But uh, anyway, just thought it was funny. But the other thing to know here is that it tells us that he tore and he killed the lion when? As the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. 
And so we see here that the Spirit is the source of His power. And we also see that the Spirit is preserving His life. He's keeping, the Spirit's keeping Him from getting killed. And uh, so let's keep reading here, verse 8. After some days He returned to take her. And He turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into His hands and He went on, eating as He went. And he came to his father and his mother, and he gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. And just a real quick note on this, if um, not only is this gross, I mean, I don't don't know about, I'm a little bit of a germaphobe, I don't think I could eat honey out of a dead body, but uh, this too is a violation of his Nazarite vow. If you remember, one of the other regulations was he, he was not even to go near a dead body, and yet here you have him eating food out of one, and And so that's just a quick note there. But uh, let's finish off the chapter, verse 10. His father went to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat and out of the strong came something sweet. And in the three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Then Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that the feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Eshkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave their garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been best man. Okay. This is so good. I mean, it's so good. Uh, so what's going on here? Well, Samson's at his wedding. This, and weddings back then, they went on for multiple days, multiple weeks even. And, and it would be like one big party. And there would have been lots of wine, which again is suspicious, perhaps compromising. Uh, there would have been tons of food. And, and obviously, your friends and your family would be there. And yet, if you pay attention, only his dad goes with him. And based on verse 11, it seems that the Philistines actually had to provide him with 30 friends, one of which would uh, function as his best man. And so Samson is quite the loner. We see that all throughout his life. And he's so much the loner that he has to be provided his own groomsman and best man. And, and apparently at some point during the wedding uh, activity, Samson decides to do a little gambling. He, he, he makes this bet with his newfound groomsmen and he tells them this riddle that he's convinced they can't solve. And, and they, are, they are stumped. They, they are unable to solve it. So much so that they actually threaten to kill Samson's new wife and her family if she doesn't tell them. And so 
Uh, her being afraid for her life goes on to manipulate Samson into sharing the, the answer with her. And, and then Samson utters maybe one of the greatest statements in the Bible. He says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. And so, you know, this dude calls his new wife a cow. And, and he's like, look, I know what you guys are up to. I know what you've been doing. And then we're told the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Eshkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and he took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And then in hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And so apparently, Samson was gambling with money that he did not have. And, and so in order to pay his debts, he goes and kills 30 random guys of another town and steals their clothes just so he can pay off the debt. And, and look, that might bother us again, that we may be bothered that the Spirit comes upon him when he does this. But again, we have to keep going back to what I've been saying all along. We have to put it in its proper context. Samson's purpose was to deliver Israel from the Philistines, which would have meant him fighting and killing them. And yet he wasn't doing that. And so the Lord uses Samson's selfish response as a weapon of war against the Philistines. The last thing we notice in this chapter is that Samson goes back home without his bride and so his fa- her father ends up giving her to his best man. And so from this, we would have known that Samson and his wife had not consummated their marriage yet. Because that would have happened at the end of the wedding festivities, which got interrupted by this whole gambling fiasco. And, and uh, so let's go on to chapter 15, verse 1. After some days at the time of the weed harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in, and her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and he caught 300 foxes, and he took torches, and he turned them tail to tail, and he put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines, and he set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and he stayed at the cleft of the rock at Edom. Just keeps getting better. I mean, um, here we go. So Samson, after some time, realizes that he wants to go and consummate his marriage. And so... He brings a young goat as a way to say, sorry, sorry, honey, I ruined the wedding. Um, please accept this young goat. You know, we bring flowers, but they apparently brought young goats. And, and then he finds out that her dad actually, um, he's like, look, I, I thought you hated her. I actually gave her uh, to your best man. And how about you take her younger daughter who's more prettier anyway, which by the way, dad, just FYI, don't do that. Don't be that dad who is comparing his kids and, um, and Samson is not happy. And Samson's like, all right, this time I will be innocent in regard to the Philistines. And so it seems that perhaps he feels bad for killing those, those 30 guys and stealing their clothes. But he's saying, this time I'm not going to feel bad. And so we read that he catches 300 foxes and he ties torches to their tails. And he releases them to the Philistine fields and, and he destroys all of their harvest. 
And, uh, you know, I don't know how that's possible. I just trust that it's in the Word of God. Uh, most scholars think that it was actually uh, jackals, which I don't know if that makes it any easier, but um, it is what it is. Um, and then we're told that um, they kill Samson's wife and her family. And then Samson, in, reta- in retaliation, whips and kills them. And then we're told that he goes and he lives in a cave for a while. And so things are really starting to escalate here between Samson and the Philistines. Uh, Let's keep going. Verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and they encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom, and they said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Okay, so at this point, the Philistines now come to some Israelites, some men of Judah, and they're like, look, we want Samson. We want to kill him for what he has done to us. And so the men of Judah, they go to that cave and they, they're like, they come to Samson and they're like, look, dude, you, what, ha- what are you doing? You're getting us in trouble. Don't you realize that, that the Philistines are over us? And he's like, look, I'm only doing to them what they did to me. And, and they're like, look, we don't care. We're, we're going to bind you and we're going to hand you over to them. And Samson's like, okay, fine. Just don't attack me yourselves. And so we're told that they bind him and they bring him to the Philistines. And let's, let's finish, or let's see what happens here. Verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that was caught fire, and his bonds melted off, and melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he put out his hand, and he took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it is called En Hakakor. It is at the Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Okay, so Samson is bound by these ropes by his fellow Israelites. They hand him over. And then the Spirit uh, again comes upon him. And he breaks the ropes. And he, he picks up a jawbone of a dead donkey. And then we're told he kills a thousand men with it. And so again, he breaks his Nazarite vow by touching something of a dead body. And then he makes up this cute little song, and then it says that he tosses the jawbone away. And, and we're told that he's so thirsty that he calls out to God for the very first time in his life. And yet even the way he does it is enough to make you sick. He's like, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? 
And then we're told that God answers his prayer and does a miracle and provides water for him and that his spirit returned and he revived. And then this interesting thing happens. We find out that he names the place. And if you look in your footnotes to find out the name of the place, what it means, it, it means this. The spring of him who called. You may be thinking, well, why does that matter? Well, in other words, Samson named the place after himself instead of God. You see, previously in the Bible, when when God has shown up, when he has answered prayers, when he has done miracles, people then will name the place after God. And, you know, one example of this is when Jacob wrestles God. It says that he names the place Peniel, which means the face of God. And yet Samson is so narcissistic, he's so prideful that he names it after himself. The chapter then finishes, it tells us that Samson judged Israel for 20 years. And so let's stop right there. We'll leave chapter 16 for next week. But for the rest of our time, I would like to to spend some time talking about and pointing out some, some sin areas, some problems that plague Samson throughout his life and that will ultimately lead to his tragic death. And I want to talk about them because I believe that they are problems and that they are temptations that you and I face today as well. And the first sin area, the first problem we see in the life of Samson is this, that He was a man whose life was marked by compromise. We've already pointed out and talked about how he compromised and broke his Nazarite vow. We talked about how he pursued and married a Philistine woman, which broke the Mosaic law. And so based on his life, what we begin to see is that Samson treated the commands of God lightly. Samson treated the commands of God casually. In other words, he had no problem testing the boundaries of God and even crossing them frequently. And the thing is this, up until this point in Samson's life, there haven't been any major consequences to his sin, to his compromising. In fact, sometimes he is even used by God while he is compromising, like when he kills the thousand men with the, with the jawbone. And you know, that's really frightening to me. It's, it's frightening for me that, that, that you can be used by God even while you're living a life of sin. And what I realize is this, that, that sometimes God's judgment on you, sometimes his discipline in your life is not you getting caught and being punished, but actually sometimes his discipline involves you uh, being allowed to succeed, allowing you even to be used and to have an impact. And I think that's why we're all so blown away when we find out that so-and-so pastor was living a double life and he was having an affair, he was stealing money because... I think we think to ourselves, yeah, but God was using them so much. I mean, I mean, that book, that sermon, it really helped me. It moved me. It had a huge impact on my life. That, that conference that he led, I, I just don't understand how that's possible. Because they were living lives of compromise. But I think we have to realize a few things. First off, your sin will find you out, right? Your compromising will eventually lead to devastating consequences. It, it does in the life of Samson. Yes, God uses him and he sees some success, but his life does end tragically through his sin. And there's also this reality where maybe you are being used, you're still succeeding. And yet oftentimes when you dig into those stories, particularly when you hear a pastor confess sin, and you, you, you hear them in that process talk about that, one of the things you almost always will hear is them say this, yeah, I've not felt close to God in years. I've, I've not heard from the Spirit in a long time. And so my question to you this morning is this. What if the real harm of compromising isn't necessarily getting caught or called out, but what if the real harm is having the presence of God? 
If having the closest of the Spirit driven out of your life. You see, when we think about Samson and we think about how eager and how willing the Spirit of the Lord was to come upon him and use him despite his flaws, you just have to wonder how much more could God have used him? How much more of the Spirit's presence and the the Spirit's power could Samson have experienced in his life? You see, I believe knowing and experiencing God's presence is one of the most precious things that we get to have in this life. And the reason that is, is because it says in Psalm 1611 that in your presence there is fullness of joy. And so if compromising drives out the presence of God, then it also means that it drives out the joy of the Lord. And that's kind of the ironic thing about compromising. Because usually we, we end up compromising. The reason we go down that path is because we somehow have convinced ourselves that by doing that it will bring us joy. And yet it has the opposite effect. And so this morning, I just want to ask you, are there areas in your life where you are compromising? Have you compromised in what you watch? Would you be embarrassed if I or one of the other pastors saw your viewing history on Netflix or YouTube? Have you compromised at work? Are you you working hard? Are you performing your job with integrity? Have you compromised at home? Is your family life a mess and and it's a mess because you're compromising? You're not doing it with integrity. And I don't say all of that to guilt trip you. I don't say that to make you feel bad. I say that because I believe the Spirit may want to bring conviction. I say that because I'm trying to wake some of you up. You come in here week after week and and yet you're living double lives. You're living lives of compromise. And, And because I love you, I believe that maybe the Lord wants to do something here this morning. I believe some of you are missing out on all that the Lord would have for you. And primarily you're missing out on the presence of God and and therefore you're missing out on the joy of the Lord. And that's a devastating thing. It's a sad thing. It's, It's not what we were meant to have as believers. We were meant to live lives where we are being led by the Spirit, where we're experiencing His presence and His joy. And so that's the first scenario that we see in Samson's life. The the second is this that he was extremely impulsive. If he saw a good-looking girl, he wanted her. If he saw some honey, even if it was in a dead animal, he ate it. If 30 guys ripped him off in a bet, he would get mad and kill 30 other guys to pay off his debts. And on and on it goes. You see, Samson was ruled by his lust. Samson was ruled by his desires, and because of that, he acted and he reacted impulsively all of the time. And what being impulsive shows is a lack of self-control. And uh, so I just want to show you a real quick video that I think will help illustrate this, will help uh, really bring home what I'm trying to show here. So you can go ahead, Gail.
I love that little girl. She's, she's eating it before the lady finishes the direction. She's just, <laughs> the little boy, I really am, I want that guy to be our president, you know, because he, he was tempted, but he fought it and he made it. And I uh, just thought it was a cute video. But, uh, you know, that's a very famous and popular psychology test. And, and one of the interesting things about it is this. They, they've, uh, they've actually, this is over 40 years old, and they've tracked some of these kids who did the original experiment. And what they have found out is this, the kids who are willing to delay gratification, who, who waited to receive the second marshmallow, they ended up having higher SAT scores, lower levels of substance abuse, lower likelihood of obesity, better responses to stress, better social skills as reported by their parents, and generally better scores in a range of other life measures. So in other words, it is really, really smart to live a life of self-control rather than a life that's marked by being impulsive. You see, impulsiveness can really stem from different sources. It can be like Samson, where you're just ruled by your lust. You make decisions that bring you pleasure in the moment, but that are otherwise unwise. Or maybe it manifests itself in other ways, where you react quickly to something, maybe even out of anger, and then you end up doing things that you regret. But either way, both, both sources are evidence of a lack of self-control. You know, I know that this happened to me before. I, I, uh, I remember at my old job, there was this situation where they had hired someone new to be a manager over the staff, uh, but they were hiring a lot of people at that time, and they didn't make it clear that she was going to now be our new boss, and we just thought she was going to be a fellow employee like the rest of us, and, and so one day she kind of got on me for, for something, for, um, she kind of yelled at me uh, for, about doing something that wasn't even my job. And uh, so I was upset because she had embarrassed me. I felt like she was being unjust. And more than that, I was thinking, well, who are you? You're, you're not my boss. You can't tell me what to do. And uh, so in a moment of anger, I, I wrote this email um, where I was acting impulsively. And I wrote this really ridiculous email. And I can't even remember all the things that I wrote in it. But I essentially was bashing her and calling her out. And I sent a copy to her, but I also CC'd the whole company in the email and uh, as you can imagine, it didn't go over well. Uh, I immediately got called into a meeting, and, and the boss that was over all of us was, uh, I knew him really well, and he was just horrified and shocked because it was so uncharacteristic of me. And, and basically, in the meeting, I found out that this woman was, in fact, my new manager, and that she did have the right to tell me to, to do something. And uh, so I ended up getting written up and reprimanded, and uh, it was a really good lesson of what happens when we act impulsively when we act without self-control. And, and I could share all kinds of stories of that in my life because that's a, that's a real temptation for me. And, and so I just want to ask you, though, ask you today, are you impulsive? When you think about some of the major decisions in your life, were they made on, uh, when you were being impulsive? 
When you look at your time, when you look at your money, is there a pattern of doing whatever it takes to please yourself in the moment, that instant gratification? Or is there a pattern of delayed gratification, of of waiting, of exhibiting self-control? You see, there wasn't in Samson's life, and as a result, it led to some, some really bad decisions. Then finally, the last character flaw I want to hit on is this. Samson was extremely proud and narcissistic. From making bets that he thought he couldn't lose, to naming a place after himself instead of God, who actually performed the miracle. Pride and narcissism plagued Samson and were a hallmark of his life. And the thing is this, you and I live in a very dangerous time in history because for the first time in history, we have whole pages, whole websites dedicated to ourselves, to talking about ourselves, to showing pictures of ourselves. I mean, think about this. They actually had to start uh, making phones with two cameras, one that faces out to take pictures of others, but then there was such a high demand that they actually had to start making phones with cameras that would face you so you could take a picture of yourself. Many have come out and said that this is the most narcissistic generation that has ever lived. And I don't know if that's true or not, but you can definitely see why they would say that. And in fact, as I was studying this week, I read an article uh, by a guy named Robert Ball, and he defined narcissism this way. And so I just want you to, to listen to this and see if any of this describes you. The first narcissistic characteristic is defined as an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Thinking more highly of self than is proper. Secondly, a narcissist has an inflated or fantasy expectation of great success and power. These characteristics are followed by an elevated view of one's social and mental status, limiting the narcissist interaction to people of perceived like stature. Fourthly, the narcissist looks for the expect or the narcissist looks for and expects the admiration of others. Along with these is a sense of entitlement, an expectation of deserving the best. A sixth characteristic of the narcissist is they use others to achieve personal expectations or goals. This use of others is accompanied by a complete lack of empathy. The final two characteristics of a narcissist are envy and an arrogant or patronizing attitude toward others. And as I read this week, as I looked at the life of Samson, and as I looked at some of these uh, characteristics, one of the other things I realized is that uh, another characteristic of someone who who is a narcissist is that they are almost always a loner. They don't have a lot of friends, and and part of that's just because they're really annoying to be around. I mean, who wants to be friends with someone who's always talking about themselves? And uh, this is terrible. I know this is being recorded, but uh, here we go. Um... I'm starting to realize, I think the Lord had me at my old job for so long, just for all of these stories that I have. Um, But I remember this guy that I used to work with. Uh, He was by far one of the most narcissistic people I've ever met. Uh, When he first started working for our company, he would tell us all the time how he was going to be retired by the age of 30. Uh, He was always telling us how he was going to be the most successful bodybuilder since Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, He was convinced that even in our company, he was going to move up very quickly, even though he, he kept making mistakes and couldn't even do the very basics of our job. And, uh, you know, we had company cars and you would get in a car after he had been driving it and and you would sit down and all of a sudden you would realize that the rear view mirror was not facing out back. It was actually tilted down so that he could look at himself while he drove. 
Um, you would walk in a room uh, unexpectedly and you would find him like flexing in the mirror and, and pulling up his shirt and looking at his abs. And uh, I, I, it was ridiculous. I, I wish I was making all of this up, but I'm not. Um, and to be honest, he was pretty annoying to be around. And yet as I got to know him, I realized that he didn't really have any friends. And really, I think behind the narcissism and the pride, there was a lot of loneliness and a lot of insecurity. And, and now maybe you're thinking, well, that guy's ridiculous. And, and you would be right. He, he was. But I just have to wonder, do you and I struggle with this? I mean, I think we all do at some level. I know that I do. You know, for me, I don't post a lot on Facebook. I, I certainly don't talk about my day or what I ate or my feelings. And, and if you do, I'm not saying that's wrong. I just, that feels really weird to me. I just can't do it. Um, and, and with that, I'm, I'm also someone who hates being the center of attention. I hate surprise parties. Uh, <laughs> I hate being publicly praised by others. And yet, even with all of that, I can still struggle with this. I can, I can still use others to achieve my goals. I can, I can still have an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Even though I don't like being pub, pub, uh, praised publicly, if I'm expecting it and I don't get it, I get frustrated. And so I just want you to ask yourself, are you this way? Are there narcissistic characteristics displayed in your life? You know, which camera on your phone do you use more? The one that faces out or the one that looks at you? Do you only post things online that make you look good, that make you look pretty, that make you look successful, that make you look like a great mom or a great dad? Do you obsess about how many pictures that you post, uh, about how many likes that a picture you post gets? Are you sad when you, when you write something or when you show a picture and no one comments on it? I think we all struggle at this at some level. And so those are just some of the characteristics of the character flaws in Samson's life. Uh, you know, I could have chosen others because, <laughs> believe me, there's a lot there. Uh, but I just felt led that those were the three to focus on. And, and to be honest, I hate to end a message like this. I, I hate to end a message where I'm just asking these probing questions, these, these questions that expose our sin without getting to grace and, and getting to the gospel. And we will get there next week when we wrap up the life of Samson, I promise. But as I was thinking about it, you know, I could have done it. I could have then transitioned and said, you know what, guys, you know, but that's okay because uh, there's grace, there's forgiveness, there's the gospel. But I just wonder sometimes if we rush too quickly to make ourselves feel better. I just wonder if we rush sometimes too quickly to feel safe. And I think sometimes the Spirit would have us stop and He would have us take some time to examine ourselves, to examine our lives, and to take an honest, hard look at our sin and to really feel the weight of that. Now, don't mishear me. Don't, don't twist what I'm saying. Of course, there's grace. Of course, there's forgiveness. But for repentance to be genuine, you have to really feel the weight of your sin. You have to hate it. You have to really hate it. You have to want to change. You have to want to go in a different direction. You have to want to be done with that part of your life. And so let's end there for now. Next week, we'll, we'll finish the life of Samson. We'll, we'll look at his relationship with Delilah. We'll see his tragic death. We'll then focus on some big lessons from his life. But for now, let's pray. Let's worship. And if you need to sit there in your pew and confess some sin to the Lord, I want to encourage you to do that. Father, Lord, we... We're so in need of your grace. Lord, I thank you that you offer it. God, I think all of us, if we're being honest there, it's easy to look at a guy like Samson and, and say, that's not me. It's easy to look at his life and, and to be critical. 
It's easy to look at his character flaws and, and, and to immediately just write ourselves off that we don't struggle with those things. And yet, Lord, I believe all of us at some level have moments of compromise. Lord, I believe all of us at some level uh, act impulsively. We, we don't delay gratification. We do things to please ourselves even at the cost of others. And Lord, certainly in this day and age, all of us struggle with, with being prideful, with, being, uh, with, with, with displaying narcissism. And so, Father, would you help us? Spirit, would you, would, you bring, uh, would you open our blind eyes to those areas in our life where we don't see sin? Lord, would you expose it this morning? God, would you bring conviction? And Lord, I thank you that that as you do that, Lord, there's grace, Lord, that, that, you know, we know Satan hates or Satan loves to keep things hidden, Lord, but when we confess and we expose our sin to the light, we find freedom, we find grace, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins, who allows us to be able to confess without fear, who allows us to be able to confess without condemnation. It's in your son's beautiful name we pray. Lord, we, we lift up this offering to you. We ask that it, you would use it to ex, expand your kingdom throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen.